been working our way verse by verse through the book of Matthew, but we're not going to do that this morning because on the church calendar this morning is Easter. Easter is a traditional date on the church calendar. You know that typically Easter follows after Passover because historically the resurrection of Christ took place after he died. Follow me here. (laughs) And we know that he died on Passover, and then we know that he raised on the first day of the week following Passover. But years ago, there were a series of calendrical corrections made, and most of the changes to our calendar, the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar, which we now live under, most of those changes were made in order to keep Easter in the spring where it belongs. And so uh, Pope Gregory in the late 1500s imposed the calendar that we live in now. And part of the decision of the church, when I say church here, I am talking about the church at Rome, One of the decisions that they made fairly early on and designed the calendar around was the idea that they could station Easter every year at a particular point in the year and keep it in the spring. And so they decided that Easter would be observed on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. So as soon as the spring equinox happens, spring starts, first full moon, first Sunday after that, well, that becomes Easter, regardless of what the Jewish calendar is doing in determining when Passover is going to be. Well, the spring equinox is always now March 21st, the same way that my birthday, September 21st, is always the first day of fall, December 21st, first day of winter. It falls automatically on the 21st every three months. So the spring equinox happened on March 21st, and then as I was down in Tuscaloosa this week, I noticed on Monday the full moon. I was standing in front of Mom's house looking at the full moon, and sure enough, here we are in that first Sunday after the full moon after the spring equinox. Meanwhile, the Jewish calendar, which is kind of complicated and on a 19-year cycle, is determined by the moon. It's a lunar calendar. And because it's a lunar calendar, it's determined by 12 months of 30 days each, which is a 360-day year. And so every so often they have to readjust, otherwise their feasts become uh, later and later in the year as they keep missing five days a year. So every so often they just insert a month an extra 30 days that brings the calendar back around so that their feasts fall at the proper times in the seasons and in our cycle around the sun. They add that month at the end of their calendrical year, which means that it pushes the first day of the month back further. The first day of the month, the month of Nisan, is the the month of Passover. It's the first day of their calendar year and The month begins when they see the first glimmer of the beginning of a new moon. Fourteen days later, two weeks later, as the full moon occurs, that is the beginning of Passover. So this month, between the early date of Easter and the extra days in the lunar calendar, Passover is not until April 22nd. 
despite the fact that today is traditional Easter. So by the church calendar, we actually have Jesus rising a month before he dies. And that is a result of people messing with the calendar and the differences between the solar and the lunar calendar. So we made a decision here at GCA because we have always planned our annual communion service as close as we can to being an anniversary of the actual event. We decided that our communion service would take place next month, April 24th, because that would be the Sunday after Passover. From a historic standpoint, that is more accurately the anniversary of the day that Jesus actually rose from the dead and the anniversary of his institution of the Lord's Supper. So we made that decision. That decision being made, then what do we do about the fact that today is traditionally Easter, even though today as Easter corresponds with Nothing historically. It's just the traditional date that the church has imposed on us. So we could ignore it and kind of go by it. Being the uh, iconoclast that I am at heart, I was sort of tempted to just keep going. But in trying to find some redeeming quality, some redeeming value to the holiday of Easter, I have to admit that I am grateful for the fact that Today, people around the world are at least having to recognize that Christianity in the world is based in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. There's a lot of talk about Jesus today. There's a lot of talk about the resurrection of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus is the single most unique element of all Christianity. It is the basis and foundation for Christianity, and so even the cynical, unbelieving world has to recognize and admit that this unique quality of Christianity is a historic claim that makes Christianity different than all the other religions of the world. So I thought we would take this morning to talk about the resurrection of Christ, its factual basis, and its importance to Christian theology. And there will not be any eggs or rabbits. By the way, up at Publix, I noticed that they have a chocolate cross. And to me, that was finally pushing the envelope too far. I just don't know how you hand a chocolate cross to your child and say, Jesus died for your sins. And they go, yeah, that's terrible because I'm a sinner. Here's a chocolate cross. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, love chocolate. (laughs) I just don't get it. Rabbits, eggs, those are all part of a spring fertility feast that predates Christianity. Best historical evidence is that probably during the time of Constantine and his successors, in an effort to bring the Roman society into some kind of unity, since there was already a spring feast being celebrated right around the time that the Christians in the spring were recognizing and celebrating the resurrection of their Christ, the two just kind of got combined. But it bothers me that the Christian recognition of the resurrection of Christ goes by a name that is actually the name of an old Canaanite goddess. Ishtar, 
or Ashtart. I just can't imagine from God's perspective that he's pleased with that given the amount of material we find in the Old Testament where God says don't chase after foreign gods and don't worship other gods and don't we've imported it wholesale we've even taken the name and then we've taken the symbols of the Ishtar feast the rabbits and the eggs which are fertility symbols and we've just imported the whole thing and now we tell our children that there is a giant mythical rodent that comes into the house in the middle of the night and that he leaves you chocolate eggs because Jesus died. And uh, I, I just don't understand it. Okay, that's that iconoclastic thing coming out. So there, I, I'm going to try to get over that and get that out of my system. Instead, we're going to talk about The resurrection, because the resurrection is a reality. The resurrection is a historic fact. This is one of the great qualities of Christianity that I find constantly so amazing and intriguing and encouraging is that Christianity is based in historic fact. And unlike all the other major religions in the history of the world, Christianity lays out a succession of eyewitness testimonies of people who actually saw the very person who claimed to be the Son of God, that very one actually died, and they saw him die, and they saw him beaten, and they know where the tomb was, and they saw him buried. And three days later, they saw him, and they talked to him, and they touched him, and he gave every evidence that he was not a ghost or an apparition. He let people touch him. He encouraged them to touch him. See that I have flesh and bone, which a ghost doesn't have, he said. He even said, give me a piece of fish and ate it in front of them just to prove that he was not a phantom, not a ghost, not a spirit. He was the actual physical resurrected person who they already knew, who they had already spent three and a half years with. They would have recognized his voice. They would have recognized his face. They would have known his his mannerism and his teaching. And here he was, though dead, standing in their midst, teaching them again. Okay, no other respected religion on the face of the planet has that as its basis. Everything else is somebody saying, I've got an idea. I've had a vision. God spoke to me. I looked into a magic hat at the seer stones, or I I went to Mecca, I heard from God, I wrote some things down. No other major religion has as its basis historic fact. And I find that incredibly reassuring. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. My dad used to collect and they collected old stamps, but in the process, he used to collect correspondence, particularly Civil War correspondence. There was just something about old letters that he liked. And some of the old letters that he has are really interesting to read. Not only because they demonstrate how badly our English skills in America have plummeted, <laughs> compared to what they were 100, 150 years ago. But he gave me this years ago because he showed it to me and I was so taken with it that he gave it to me. This letter is dated June 6, 1908. The paper is becoming a little fragile, as you might expect. 
you'll notice it's typed. So it's a very early example of a typewritten letter. The letterhead is from Ivy and Ivy, Attorneys and Counselors at Law, Shelbyville, Tennessee, June 6, 1908. What's so interesting about this, you might ask? Go ahead, ask. What's so interesting about this? You are so obedient. <laughs> Here's what the letter says. Dear friend, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the greatest event in history. No fact carries so much with it. It proves that Christ was the Son of God. It conquers the fear of death. It makes life certain beyond the grave. The greatest fact in the world is that Jesus was the Son of God. The greatest fear is the fear of death, and the greatest hope is the hope of immortality. Will you please write out a statement of all your reasons you can find for believing in Christ's resurrection as a historic fact and hand it in to me at class Sunday morning, June 14th, cordially yours. Charles Ivey. A hundred years ago, he was apparently teaching a Sunday school class, and he was concentrating on the resurrection of Christ and said that that is of primary importance to the Christian church. That's why my dad thought I might want it. And he was right. It's a verifiable fact that without the resurrection of Christ, you simply do not have Christianity. The critics of Christianity will argue that the resurrection was made up later on in Christian history in order to keep Christianity alive that Christianity was originally a sect, an offshoot of Judaism, and that they followed a Messiah, but that Messiah, it turns out, uh, died and did not establish the kingdom and did not do the things that they had hoped he was going to do. And so they, in order to save face, got together and came up with the story, oh yeah, he's alive again. And if that is the case, then what you have is the faith, the Christian faith, becoming the reason, the rationale for the teaching of the resurrection. But the opposite is what is really true. It is the fact of the resurrection that led to the Christian faith. The Christian faith exists because the resurrection is a fact. Now, if you go to our website or if you go to our YouTube page, during our systematic theology series, we took a couple of nights and we talked about the proof of the resurrection and demonstrated through historic proofs that there is no other conclusion that an honest student of the Bible can come to except that Jesus actually did resurrect from the grave. There have been a lot of reasons that the cynics have given for the story, they say, the, the mythology of the risen Christ. A lot of reasons to explain the power of the empty tomb. Things like, um, he wasn't really dead, you know, he swooned. And then when they put him in the tomb, the cold of the tomb hit him and he woke back up. And then he came out of the grave, bedraggled and beaten and bloody and pushing his stone, you know. <coughs> But that's not what the Christian testimony is. The Christian testimony says that they saw him alive and vital and strong and powerful and nothing like a, a bedraggled guy who swooned. Mm 
People have argued things like uh, it, was, it was a hallucination. That's what happened. I mean, here his poor apostles had followed him all these years, and then he died, and then they just had a hallucination that they saw him again, but he wasn't really alive. How in the world do you take a bunch of people whose dreams had been crushed, whose anticipation was that he's dead and he's going to stay dead, how you get them all at the exact same time to have the exact same hallucination, I just don't know. But that's one of the ways that people have tried to dismiss the reality of the fact that the tomb was empty. There are also those who have argued that uh, it was all just a big mistake because the women, those poor women, up too early, you know, the sun's not quite up, it's a little dark, and they went to the wrong tomb. And sure, it was empty because it was the wrong tomb. And all of Christianity for 2,000 years is a direct result of a couple of women going to the wrong tomb. Of course, and hallucinating that he's alive. Oh, yes. Since you bring that up, you said there's one tomb in the garden, and since you've been over to Israel, when you take the tours over in, in Jerusalem, they'll take you to two different tombs that they say might be the tomb of Jesus. And the reason they don't know which one it is is because he's not in it. He's gone. That's why you can find Grant's tomb because he's in it. You can find any historic person's tomb because they're still in it. But the reason we don't know exactly which tomb was Jesus' tomb is because he was only in it for three days and then he was out of it. And to the early Christian church, the tomb wasn't important. He was out of it. So we've lost track of where the tomb was. Then there are people who argue about the stolen body. They say it's not that he resurrected. It's that uh, the disciples stole the body. That's what happened. And then they made the claim that he was alive. Now, there are a couple of variations on that theme. You can find some critics who say that the Jews stole the body, which I find completely untenable because if that happened, you would think that the Jews, who have a vested interest in stopping the preachment of the resurrection, because if Jesus is the Son of God, if he is resurrected, if he is the Messiah, then everything he said about them is actually true. And they are whitewashed sepulchers. And they are a den of vipers. And they can't escape the fire of hell. And so they have a vested interest in making sure that the Jesus preaching stops. If they have the body, there's no better way to stop the preaching. You just pull the body out. Oh, he's alive, huh? Well, ta-da. Look at there. There he is. That stops it cold. Same thing with the Romans. You can read critics who say the Romans took the body. Given the Roman persecution of the church, given Caesar worship being undermined by Christianity, again, they have a vested interest in stopping it. If they have the body, they would take it out. And so it comes down to the veracity of the actual witnesses. It comes down to, did the disciples actually see him living again, or did they concoct a lie? And that's really what Christianity comes down to. Either the eyewitnesses faithfully and genuinely told the story of what they actually genuinely witnessed, or they made it up. And if they made it up, we can all go home now, because we're wasting a lot of time, and there's a lot of sinning left to do. <laughs> but if it's true, well, then that is the single most important event in human history. I mean, genuinely life-altering. Well, so 
I'm going to read a bit here for you. This is actually something that I did post on the GCA Facebook page yesterday. But since I know that not all of you read the GCA Facebook page, this is from Dr. George Eldon Ladd in his book, A Theology of the New Testament. He does a really good job of summarizing the argument in favor of the resurrection of Christ as a proven historical fact. It's just a couple paragraphs long, so I'm going to read it to you. He writes... The witness of the New Testament is that an objective act took place in a garden outside of Jerusalem in which the crucified and entombed Jesus emerged from the grave into a new order of life. As we deal with the objective fact of the resurrection, it is not our intention to prove the fact of the resurrection in order to compel your faith because we recognize that faith cannot be compelled by a recital of historical or objective facts. Faith can only be produced by the working of the Holy Spirit upon the human heart. But the Holy Spirit used the witness of the disciples to the reality of the resurrection of Christ, and we must here bear witness to the facts of the New Testament record. The Gospels attest several facts. First, that Jesus was dead. Few serious scholars will question this. Second, the hopes of the disciples were also dead. Jesus had preached the coming of the kingdom of God, and his disciples followed him in the vibrant expectation that they would witness the kingdom's coming and see the redemption of Israel. Even though Jesus had, on at least several occasions, warned them of his impending death and had tried to prepare them for it, They never really understood what he was saying. It is important to recall that first century Jews did not understand the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 to apply to the Messiah. By definition, the Messiah was to reign in his kingdom, not suffer and die. And when Jesus surrendered himself helplessly into the hands of his enemies, when he suffered execution as a common criminal, their hope was broken. For them, it was the end of Jesus and his preaching and the end of their hopes. A third fact is, the disciples' discouragement and frustration was suddenly and abruptly transformed into confidence and certainty. Suddenly, they were certain that Jesus was no longer dead. Something happened that convinced them that Jesus was alive. They were sure that they had seen him, that they had heard his voice, that they had recognized his person. A fourth fact is the empty tomb. This is witnessed by all the Gospels, and it is presupposed in Paul's creedal statement in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, which we will look at this morning. There would be no point in emphasizing the burial of Jesus or the fact that his resurrection took place on the third day, unless the resurrection meant emptying the tomb. Many scholars maintain that the reports of the empty tomb are a late legendary accretions that were designed to support the Christian belief of the resurrection. But many scholars today feel compelled to accept the historicity of the empty tomb. A fifth historical fact is the resurrection faith. 
Few will deny today that it is a solid fact of history that the disciples believed that Jesus was raised from the grave. Those scholars who are unable to believe it themselves and are unable to believe in an actual resurrection of Jesus do admit that the disciples believed it. The disciples believed that their teacher and master, who was dead and buried, was alive again. They were confident that they had seen him once again. They had heard his voice. They had listened to his teaching. They recognized his features. They believed that his presence was not spiritual or non-material. It was not a ghostly thing, but it was an objective bodily reality. Now, this was the faith that created the church. That which brought the church into being and gave it a message was not the hope of the persistence of life beyond the grave. It was not a confidence in God's supremacy over death or a conviction of the immortality of the human spirit. Those are not the things that established the Christian church. It was belief in an event in time and space that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus is an unavoidable historical fact, and without it, there would have been no church. But we must go further to the final and crucial fact. Something happened to create in the disciples belief in Jesus' resurrection. And here is the crucial issue. It was not the disciples' faith that created the stories of the resurrection. It was an event lying behind the stories that created their faith. Do you understand that? Do you get that point? Because far too often the critics say that it's the Christians that invented the resurrection. Ladd is arguing it is the resurrection that invented Christianity. Without it, you have nothing. They had lost faith, he writes. They were quote, foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. That's Luke 24, 25. The fact of the resurrection and faith in the resurrection are inseparable, but not identical, because the fact created the faith. Amen. You got that? Great writing, so I had to share that with you now. So it comes down to, are the eyewitnesses credible? After many years of wrestling with them, wrestling with the facts, wrestling with what they wrote, I can't conclude anything other than that they were testifying to things they had actually seen because we get consistent testimony in the Gospels of the character and the nature of these people. As Ladd just wrote, they were slow of heart to believe, slow to believe all that the prophets had written. We're going to see a couple passages this morning where Jesus tells them to their face, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. And they don't believe it. In fact, they even argue with him. Peter says, let that be far from you. They have no faith in this idea. They believe him to be the Messiah who is going to establish the kingdom. And that's really what they're looking for. Just throw off the yoke of Rome, defeat our enemies, establish the kingdom, raise us up again, which is why two of them would send their mother to even say, when you come into your kingdom, can my boys have the right and left seat around you? They're looking for the kingdom and they want some kind of authority in the kingdom. And then he dies. And what do they do? They scatter. They run. Peter denies him. And then Peter 
who swore like a fisherman and said, I don't know him three times, is the very one who stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, you killed the Prince of Life. Something changed. That's all I'm saying. Something changed. You go back and you read Fox's Book of Martyrs and you read about where these different apostles went and how they died and what they went through. Thomas is a great example. Thomas who, it's always Thomas, which is why we give him the name Doubting Thomas to this day. 2,000 years, he still has that nickname. I figure he's up in heaven going, can we get over that? Okay, so I doubt it a little, all right. He shows up at, at the meeting with the other apostles and they say, you missed him, the Lord was here. He says, I won't believe unless I can touch him myself, put my hand into the holes in his side. Unless that happens, I'm not going to believe. Jesus shows up. He says, don't, don't be doubtful, believe. Don't be unbelieving. Here, touch me. It's me. Jesus actually submitted himself and said, here, touch me. See that it really is me. You know that it's Thomas who, by best tradition, went into India, one of the most difficult places to go and preach the one God, the one Christ, Considering that in that area of India, they had a whole pantheon of gods. They had the drive through pick-your-own-god religion. And he would go there and preach Christ, and we know that he was martyred there, driven through with a stave, and died there professing Christ. And in fact, we know that all of the apostles, save John, who lived the longest and ended up on the Isle of Patmos and received the revelation, all of the other apostles, save Judas who committed suicide, All those who remained faithful to Christ died as martyrs. They all died saying what it was that they believed, that Jesus was the Son of God who was dead and rose again. And in the annals of history, you can look, I have, you can look, you can search, you can comb through all the records, and you won't find one place where anyone ever claims that any one of those men under torture and fear of death ever said, never mind, we made it up. Just stop peeling my skin off. Just don't crucify me upside down. Just stop hurting me because remember, you're talking about a time and a place where they went out exactly as Jesus said to do in what we call the Great Commission. They went out and they preached the gospel to every living creature and they went out among the Gentiles and out into the nations, which is why the church now exists around the world because they took that message out into the world. So they were separated. They were divided. They were apart from each other and they were all preaching the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then they all died these horrific deaths. And if any one of them at any point wanted to save his life, all he had to do was say, we made it up. Now, if they had made it up, if they are lying, because that's the essential question. Are they lying or are they telling the truth? If they're lying, they can save their skin at any point. Just go to a different city. And none of the other apostles are going to know. You get together later and you say, did you break? No, I didn't break. No. You? No. Kept the lie going. Kept the story going. And every one of them died horrific martyrs' deaths because they were firmly convinced that he got up out of the grave. And what does it take to convince somebody to that degree that they're willing to give up their life Something changed. Remember, these are fishermen, these are tax collectors, these are political zealots. These are not religious leaders. 
and something cataclysmic changed that changed their personality, changed the trajectory of their life, and they were willing to die for what they believed. Now, I do believe that people will martyr themselves for what they firmly believe. Lots of people believe wrong things. Lots of people believe things that are lies, but they don't think they're lies. They die because they think it's the truth. But people don't die for something that's a lie that they know is a lie. Especially if they know all they got to do is say, never mind. And you just go to the next city. You just go to the next place. You just keep moving. You go to the next place, you start again. Hey, here's our story. So I became convinced that the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, wrote the things they did and suffered the things they did because they were firmly convinced that Jesus was alive again. And the only thing that could make all of them as a group come to that same conclusion is that it had to have happened. If it hadn't actually happened, you're not going to get 100% agreement among all of these men who were the eyewitnesses. And yet they not only agree, they agree in the facts, they agree in the outcome, they agree about the significance, they agree about the theology that rises from it, and they agree about the hope that it gives the Christian church in the knowledge that Christ raised from the dead and therefore we ourselves will rise from the dead and stand before God eternally redeemed on the basis of the finished work of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is essential to Christian theology. That's my point. You take away the resurrection, you got nothing. Okay, so let's look at some Bible verses this morning that will help us understand and develop our theology of the resurrection. It is a main theme of all four Gospels. In fact, Jesus, right at the very beginning of his public ministry, declared it. As soon as he'd been baptized, he started declaring his death. John 2, starting in verse 13, turn there. John 2, verse 13. And we're going to read to verse 22. John 2, 13 to 22, starting in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now the Jews, of course, thinking logically and physically, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And so fortunately, John then tells us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So as soon as he is baptized, does his 40 days in the wilderness being tempted of Satan, goes into Jerusalem, clears the temple, 
and then right away declares that the sign he's going to show that gives him the authority to clear the temple is going to be the sign of his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus made his resurrection central to everything else he taught and even said, my authority is based on the fact that I'm going to die and resurrect. That's how important it is. That's how central it is to all Christianity. Go to John 10. Starting in verse 11. This is Jesus' declaration of who he is. This is his good shepherd speech. Describing his relationship with the sheep that belong to him. John 10, starting in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life... For the sheep, I, by the way, have argued several times from that passage, that particular atonement can be found right there. Jesus just said, I lay down my life for the sheep, not for everybody indiscriminately. Then he said, he who is a hired hand or a hireling and not the shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and he flees. And the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. He flees because he is a hireling and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me even as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I can take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay down my life by my own initiative and I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. And this commandment I received from my father. Okay, he just explained why he's here. Why is he on the planet? He came to die for specific people. He came to die for the sheep. He came to die for those that the father gave him. And then notice the language. In advance, far in advance, he tells his disciples, now I'm going to die, but you need to understand Nobody, no mortal, no physical person has overwhelmed me. Remember that several times in Jesus' ministry, he demonstrates a kind of authority where they simply cannot catch him or kill him or stop him. At one point, they take him to the edge of a cliff in order to throw him off the cliff. And we read that he turned around and walked through the middle of them. Because the whole group could not overwhelm him because he kept saying, it's not my time yet. It's not my time yet. It's not my time. When it was his time, that particular year on that particular Passover, that particular date that had been determined by the Father since before the foundation of the world, when that day happened, then he turned himself over to be crucified. And he made a point of saying, no man takes my life from me. I'm laying down my own life. And the phrase, I have the power, I have the authority to lay down my life, means nobody else has the authority to take my life. Nobody else has the authority from the Father to kill me. Only if I, by the Father's will and by my own authority, only then can I die because I have the power to lay my life down. 
and I have the power to take my life up again, and I have this command from my Father. That's why I'm here. I came to die for the sheep. I'll tell you what, let me just race through a few. Just listen. After the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was up on the Mount with with three of his apostles, with Peter, John, and James, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them. This is Matthew 17, 9. He commanded them and said, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He kept telling them. He kept telling them, This is what I'm going to do. Wouldn't you think logically, rationally, that when three days had passed and he came out of the tomb, shouldn't there have been 11 guys standing there waiting? Because he kept telling them. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, three days, three nights, I'm going to be back. And yet none of them believed because they couldn't believe. They didn't have the capacity to believe. But once the Holy Spirit came and once Jesus was resurrected, then something changed in all of them where they became very bold and very sure and very unapologetic about the fact that they were preaching something that they absolutely knew and had witnessed and had actually been first-hand witnesses to, that Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Messiah and who demonstrated his Messiahship through multiple miracles, actually died and we saw him dead and he was dead for three days and then we saw him alive. And he kept telling them over and over again, this is what I'm going to do. The resurrection is central to Jesus' theology. Or on the way to Jerusalem, the very last time, we just read it several weeks ago, Matthew 20, 17 to 19. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way, he took the twelve aside, and he said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. And on the third day, he was raised to life all by himself. He comes out and there's nobody there. By the time the first person gets there, the women in the, in the dark of the night just before the dawn, when they get there, the tomb's already empty. And they even ask an angel, what did you do with him? Where did you take his body? Mary goes into the tomb. Jesus appears to her. She thinks it's the gardener. Once she recognizes who he is when he says her name, Mary. And then he says, don't touch me. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. A couple days later, he comes back to Thomas and he says, touch me. Where's he been? He's been to the Father. He has taken the sacrifice of his blood into the heavenly temple of his Father and has demonstrated the completion of the work that he came to do so that now we can say with great boldness that the work is finished and that Christ has actually accomplished the salvation of the very sheep he came and sacrificed himself for. Again, the resurrection is central to Christian theology. That's all I'm saying. And Jesus made it that central. At the resurrection, this is John 20, verses 1 to 10, I'm going to read. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already taken from the tomb. So she ran, and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and said to him, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. See what her expectation was? 
She was not expecting resurrection. When she came and found the tomb empty, she didn't go, it's just like he said. Three days, three nights, and he's up. She goes back to Peter and John and says, they stole the body. They took him. We don't know where they took him. That's their expectation. So Peter and the other apostle went forth, and they were going to the tomb, and the two of them were running together. Yeah, they're pretty anxious about this. And the other disciple, John, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying there with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself which I find fascinating. That means that after Jesus got up, he took the time to fold his burial clothes. He wasn't in any hurry. The face cloth, which had been on his head, was not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and saw and believed. For as yet... They did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went again to their own homes. So John takes the time to tell us that they didn't understand it. Three and a half years, Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to resurrect. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be dead. Three days, three nights. I'm going to be alive again. John takes the time to say they didn't understand it. They just didn't get it. Why? Because they couldn't. I won't go off on this particular theological tangent, but there are people who say, just prove Christianity to me. I know you believe in Christ and all that stuff, but just prove it to me, okay? Okay, well, there'd be no better proof than three and a half years of walking and talking with him, watching him do miracles, seeing him walk on the water, seeing him raise the dead, And then seeing him resurrected, there's no better evidence or proof than that. And they didn't believe. Because they couldn't believe. Because even in the face of overwhelming evidence, unless God grants you the gift of faith, you won't believe because you can't believe. The people who say, just show me something and I'll believe. Even if you showed them irrefutable evidence, which, by the way, the resurrection of Christ is. Even if you demonstrate the historic fact to them that Christ raised from the dead. Even if you overwhelm them with evidence, they won't believe because they can't believe. And unless God changes them, puts his spirit in them, takes out their stony heart, gives them a heart of flesh, opens their eyes, opens their ears, and gives them the capacity to see and hear the things of God, they they won't believe. But me personally, I've never seen a miracle. I've never seen the dead raised. I've never seen a blind man suddenly receive his sight. Anybody here ever seen that? And yet we believe. Why? Because true, genuine faith is not dependent on external evidences. Genuine faith comes from the fact that the Spirit of God inhabits you. And then you believe. Which is why Paul would say, who has made you 
to differ? Who's made you different than the rest of the world? So, after the resurrection, prior to his own ascension, Luke 24, starting in verse 44, Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now he opened their minds to understand the scripture. See that? Now they get it. Oh, now we understand all these things that we couldn't understand before. It was right there in front of us. I'm sure everybody in the room has had that experience. Where you've been reading through the Bible and suddenly something has just leapt off the page at you. And suddenly you understand something you never understood before. And you just go, was that always here? Is that in every version? Was that Because I, I know I've gone by this before and now this just came alive to me. Why? Because the Spirit of God is giving you the capacity to understand the Word of God. And he had to do that for his own disciples. And then they had the ability to understand. They were able then to go back into their scripture, what we call the Old Testament, and see all of these prophecies about Messiah dying and about the resurrection and about the continuance of Christ on his throne in heaven and the establishment of the kingdom to come. And all of that they could finally understand because Jesus opened their minds, verse 45 of Luke 24, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In other words, you are the witnesses to the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, which is the promise of the Holy Spirit, and you are to stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high, And then, as I said, something cataclysmic happens to Mr. Foot-and-Mouth Peter. Mr. I-don't-know-him Peter. Mr. Let-it-be-far-from-you Peter. The Holy Spirit gets a hold of him. Suddenly, he recognizes the scripture, and he stands up on the day of Pentecost and boldly declares the guilt of the Jews and the resurrection of Christ. Turn to Acts 2. Everybody go there. This is Peter's declaration on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, we will start at verse 22. Let's start at verse 22. Men of Israel. Now we know who he's talking to. He's talking to Jews who have come in from all the surrounding areas. Jews who are living among the Gentiles who have come as the law prescribed to keep the feast, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of weeks. They're required three times a year to come to Jerusalem, so there is a mass of people in Jerusalem. And in the face of that crowd, Peter stands up and says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Look at the next line. Just as you yourselves know. 
You know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know Jesus of Nazareth has been going through here doing these miracles. You've heard it or you've seen it. He's stating facts to them. Notice he does not say, let me tell you what my faith is about, and then if you would like to, you can also choose Jesus. And you can say the sinner's prayer and come up to the front. We'll get you a box of Kleenex. You can cry a lot, and then, and then we'll tell you that you're saved. And then all the things that are so common in the modern church, Peter does not do. He stands up and declares facts because Christianity is based in facts. Historic realities. You men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, remember what Jesus said? I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to take it up again. Peter now gloms on to that theology of God's sovereign predestinary plan and says, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Okay, this is fascinating. Again, another theological reality we don't have time to really dig into, but notice what he just said. He said, God, in his sovereignty and his predetermined foreknowledge and plan, used your wickedness, and your absolute hatred of the only righteous man to accomplish his will that he determined before the worlds began. It was always his plan to send his son into the world, and it was always his plan that his son would die, which is why for three and a half years he walked around saying it. And you, though wicked, did exactly what God determined you were going to do. You hated him and you killed him because that was the predetermined plan of God. And notice that in the same context of his predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, the men are godless men with wicked hands. And yet God's will was accomplished. Well, that's just sovereignty. In other words, the single worst thing that ever happened in human history the killing of the only righteous one, the only good one, the only pure one, the only one who ever walked around on the planet doing nothing but his father's will, the only one who could ever say, I do always those things that please the father, always. They as a group killed him. It doesn't get worse than that. And it was also the single best thing that ever happened in human history because God was accomplishing his will in making sure that his son laid down his life for the sheep. And when he raised the son up out of the grave, it was a, an open testimony to the fact that God accepted that sacrifice. The fact that he rose to the father and the sacrifice was finished means that all those sheep that he died for are now saved and secure. So in God's divine sovereignty, he can turn the worst thing into the absolute best thing. Peter goes on. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by the power of death. Hear that? That's a deep theological statement. Okay, the only one for whom it is impossible for death to hold him is the one who died. Okay, it's impossible for death to hold him. 
Death has no power over him. And he died. Because, as he already explained, I have the power to lay my life down. I have the authority to both put my life down and take my life up again. And I have this command from my father. So the death of Christ was not just wicked men deciding that they hated him enough to kill him. It was God using the wicked hands of desperately evil men in order to accomplish the very thing that God and his son had agreed to do. And so he turned himself over to them so that they could beat him and flog him and nail him to the cross. But when it came time to die, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knew what he was doing. He was accomplishing the very thing that the Father had sent him to earth to do. Having accomplished it, he raised again. He went to the Father's right hand. The Father accepted the sacrifice, and all of that was accomplished by the sovereign will of God. And in the midst of it, he used wicked men to do it. Sovereignty, 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 sovereignty. Peter was a Calvinist. Okay, so... Just seeing if you're still here. That's all I was doing. Just checking. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, okay, remember that Jesus opened their minds so they could recognize the scripture and now they understand the things that were written about him. Now he quotes right from the Psalms something that was always in there. It was always in the scripture. It was right there. They didn't get it. Peter didn't get it. He didn't understand it. Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to fulfill all that the scripture says about me. Uh, Sorry, got nothing. Uh, Brain death. Don't know what you're talking about. Sorry. But now, because Christ has died and resurrected, and the Holy Spirit came upon them the day of Pentecost, upper room, tongues of fire, all of that, now Peter suddenly remembers, and oh yeah, David wrote about this. This has always been in our scripture. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted, and moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, and thou wilt make me full of gladness in thy presence. So that's a messianic psalm that David was writing first person, and yet David died and stayed in his tomb. And so Peter says, verse 29, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon the throne, he, David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, Nor did his flesh suffer decay. So now Peter gets it and says, David was writing about the Christ and he was writing about the resurrection. And I never knew that and I never got it and I never understood it. Now my eyes are open and now I understand it. The reason that David wrote this wasn't about himself because he did go into the tomb and he did stay there and he did decay. And he did suffer death. He had to have been writing about the resurrection of Christ. Why? Because of the Davidic covenant that says one of the descendants of David is going to sit on the throne forever. 
You know, Jesus of Nazareth was the one that they thought was going to do that. And then he died and then all their hopes were crushed and oh, no kingdom. And then he rises again. And then Peter recognizes, oh, wait, he can establish the throne. And he is the son of David. And the kingdom is still coming. And that's why they would ask things like, now? You can do it now? Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and is in his tomb, which is with us to this very day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all Witnesses, he's now making the claim, we saw it ourselves, we are eyewitnesses, you can trust our testimony, we're telling you the truth, we saw it, we spoke to him, we ate with him, we touched his side, therefore, verse 33, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you see and hear, the cataclysmic change that happened to these men and the ability to speak to them in such a way that every one of the people in front of him heard in his own tongue, in his own language, they all heard the preachment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God opened their ears. God opened their ability to understand because the promise that was attached to the resurrection was a promise for Israel that David's son is still going to establish the kingdom. But it is equally the promise that because the righteous and holy one got up again, we're going to get up again. All of that is wrapped up in the necessity of the resurrection. Verse 34. For it was not David that ascended into heaven. By the way... You are millennialists listening to me out there, and I know you are. You say that when Jesus died and went to heaven, that he's sitting at the right hand of God on David's throne, and that that's the fulfillment of all those promises of a kingdom to come, that the kingdom is right now. The kingdom was established right there at Calvary and, and is continuing on now for a thousand years, give or take a thousand, and that the kingdom... Notice that Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, makes the point that David never ruled from heaven. David's throne is not in heaven. David's throne is in Jerusalem. That's where Christ has to rule and reign on David's throne. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord, Kurios, Master, and Christ, Messiah. And this is the Jesus whom you crucified. The one you crucified is the one that God has made Lord and Christ. Testified by what? Proven by what? demonstrated by what the resurrection without the resurrection you have none of this but based in the resurrection all the rest of it is true and Peter argues it that way 
All right, I have so much more stuff, but later on, just listen, later on, Peter's second sermon, Acts 3, 11 to 16. You can turn there if you want. I mean, you're in Acts, but it's Acts 3, starting at verse 11. Peter has just healed a, a lame beggar. So while the lame beggar was clinging to Peter and John, naturally, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, and they were all full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he said to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze on us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So even the miracles that Peter and John and the other apostles continued doing as you go through the book of Acts, they all go back to the same moment. They all go back to the resurrection. They all go back to that moment in time and say, that's the power. It isn't our power. It's not my power. It's not something in me. It's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And if he could raise him from the dead, he could make this guy walk. If he can raise him from the dead, now he can raise anybody from the dead. He can heal blind eyes because it is the power of God, the same God that resurrected Jesus. And it is faith in the risen Christ that is sort of the trading commodity that results in what you see here. The resurrection is central to the Christian faith. One more passage and we're done. We'll call it a morning. Though I have lots of other stuff, I have evidence that the Trinity was active in the resurrection. We won't go to that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I have verses I was going to hand out. People were going to do a lot of reading. We have lots and lots of stuff to work with still. I'll just put my notes up on my blog, and you can flip through that later on your own if you want to fill out your thinking and knowledge of the resurrection. I've got verses galore about how it is the main theme of Pauline doctrine and theology. We have time. <laughs> you have time. You, you drove all the way here. From, but you know, there's no one in the room that likes you right now. <laughs> <laughs> starting to get a little bit warm and uh, and I need to let you all go I know you have lunch plans and I have time I have nowhere to be now right at the beginning right at the very top of 1 Corinthians 15 you find one of the earliest creedal statements of the early Christian church a declaration of what is commonly believed among the Christians this is really, really important because the critics of Christianity again claim that the Christian claims of resurrection, miracles, all that stuff, is historic development, that it took time for that stuff to be developed 
in order for uh, that claim to go out into the world and for Christianity to grow. The Pauline ministry happens within the first 30 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But what we just read from Peter at the day of Pentecost is within 50 days of the actual events. In other words, there's simply no time for historical development. There's no time for them to get together in a room and go, okay, guys, here's what's happened. Uh, He's dead, so he's gone. He's out of the picture. Now, what are we going to do? Are we going to go back and join the Jews? They're probably not going to let us because, well, we just caused all this problem. I'll tell you what, let's just keep it going. Let's just keep the religion going, and we'll just say that he raised, and we'll say that he said for us to go to all that stuff. There's no time. In fact, Luke writing, after exploring all the facts, after talking to eyewitnesses and writing his two letters to Theophilus, Luke takes the time to tell us that during the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, for 40 of those days, they were together with him learning about the kingdom. And so there's simply not a lot of time for all of this other theology, all the Pauline theology that is based in the resurrection, all of these early creeds and statements. There's no time for that to develop in that first 50 days. In other words, the things that Peter was declaring He was saying, I'm telling you this because I saw it. I was there. I'm just reporting to you what actually occurred. So the critics who will tell you, and you find this all over the Internet, uh, it just couldn't be more fallacious. It couldn't be more ahistorical. It couldn't be dumber. But there are people who will say, well, you know, it was Constantine who got together and decided, you know, these are the books that are going to be in the Bible, and this is how the Christian faith is going to work, and these are the things the Christians are going to believe, and as if, since we know that Christianity developed among the Jews, and the Jews already have a corpus of scripture, and already have a highly developed religion, they're not going to allow their Roman captors to define their new religion for them. That's just not going to happen. But there's no time for historic development. That's my point. The things that were said, the things that were declared, the things that were believed among the early church are fully developed by the time that Paul is writing here in his first epistle to the church at Corinth. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I have preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. Okay, this is first importance. I'm telling you the primary thing. Even if you don't understand anything else about Christianity, I'm going to tell you the single most important thing of primary importance. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, Then to the twelve, after that, 
he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So in other words, Paul's saying, if you don't believe me, I got 500 people you can talk to. Go check with them. Notice Paul is not saying, take this on faith. He's saying, I'm telling you facts. Go check the facts. Go talk to the witnesses. Go check my story and see if it's not true. Of primary importance is the fact that he died, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, it's a provable fact. There was Cephas, there was the 12, there was the 500 brethren. And then he appeared to James, verse 7 says, and to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember that among the Jews, you had this big schism between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees denied resurrection outright. And he's saying, but if I have all these witnesses that Jesus raised from the dead, how do you hold that there is no resurrection? But then he talks about the theological importance of the resurrection. And it's this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith also is vain. If they're walking around believing, you know, Christ is my sacrifice. The blood of Christ redeemed me. If they're walking around believing the Messiah has secured me with God eternally, but he didn't resurrect, none of that's true. You got nothing. Now notice as Paul continues here, he takes the presence of God, the existence of God, the reality of God as a given. He doesn't even argue about whether God exists. He only says, since God exists and there is no resurrection, think how deep your trouble is. Because God's a judge. And now you have nobody standing in the gap between you and the righteous holy judge. You're in trouble. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. And moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life also, we are of all men most to be pitied or most miserable. But then he sets up the order of resurrection. But now Christ 
has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Okay, so everything that we believe about our future, everything we believe about our standing with God, everything that we believe about our salvation and our eternal security is wrapped up in one important historical fact. He got up. If he didn't get up, nothing else matters. If he didn't get up, eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow you die, and then the judgment. But if he got up, then everything else he said is true. If he raised from the dead, then he is, in fact, the only mediator you need between you and God. You don't need any pope or any priest or any church or any preacher. You don't need anything but Christ. And if you have him, that is sufficient to secure your eternity with the righteous and the holy God. And that is why it is so vitally important that we understand the resurrection and that we settle it. Years ago, Easter, 1982, I was at my apartment in uh, San Francisco, north of San Francisco, San Rafael, watching a little TV that had a screen about that big. But hey, it was color. Middle of the night, came home from the studio, just dragging out. Turned on the TV, looking for anything. And of course, in the middle of the night, it's all just commercials and junk. And there was a guy preaching, and it was Easter. So he was preaching his Easter message. And he preached the evidences and the proof of the resurrection. And when he got done, he looked in the camera and he said, now settle it. And that did it for me. That was a conversion moment for me. Now settle it. I've spent how many years since 1982 settling it? Reading, looking at the evidence, doing all the footwork, looking for anything that can prove to me that he did not come out of the grave. Because if he didn't, and I can prove it, then I can throw off all this stuff and go live the rest of my life without having to worry about the burden that comes with the job. And there are certainly days I would like to throw off that burden. The problem is there's zero evidence that it didn't happen and overwhelming evidence that it did. And so I say to you today, settle it. Realize that Jesus of Nazareth proved that he is both Lord and Messiah by the fact that he got up out of the grave. And if that's true, then he has every right to stake his claim on you. Say, you're mine. 
you belong to me. And whatever that means for the rest of your life, and whatever that means in terms of the trouble that you may have to encounter in this life, and certainly the trouble is here, and the trouble is coming, and the trouble is rising, and Christianity is going to be increasingly hated here on the planet. And you're going to need something you can hang on to. You're going to need something you can hold on to that will allow you to endure the persecution. And for me, it's he got up. And if he got up, since he got up, nothing can shake me because I settled it. So that's my message for you today. Easter 2016, be back in a month and we'll have communion with Passover on what is genuinely Resurrection Sunday. But that's my message to you is settle that issue. And if you can settle that, then everything else in the Bible will just come alive for you. You understand me? Questions? Wow, there were no questions today. Did you see that? Something went right. I don't know. I know. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.